Welcome everybody to, to Neuro Noodles podcast featuring Dr. Laura Jansons. Hi, Dr. Laura. Hello, uh, Pete. Okay. Hello, Pete. Hi, I'm Pete Jansons, owner of uh, Neuro Noodle, uh, co-host of the podcast. Dr. Laura is the, the uh, co-host as well. Uh, we have a special guest today, uh, Dr. Skip Prin. Prin. Did I say that right, Doc? Prin. Pretty close. Pretty close. I need some more feedback, neurofeedback. Uh, th uh, thanks for coming on, uh, Dr. Skip. We're going to call you Dr. Skip from now on. Is that okay? That's perfect. It's easier for everybody, and, and I'll answer to it. That's fantastic. Uh, the topic is uh, listener questions that uh, we got from our last podcast, and a ma majority of them are dealing with uh, kids and COVID. Uh, you know, how, how parents should... Uh, you know, work with their kids on the topic. I'll be reading off the questions and you guys can answer. I will uh, stay back. Once it's done, you guys let me know you're done and I'll read off another question. Um, but uh, uh, Dr. Skip, tell us about yourself before we get going. Sure. How do we find you? Thanks for having me on, first of all. And then to answer that last question, uh, I have been in psychology for 20, 25 years, but in 2012 or so, I switched up and started studying neuropsychology, which took me to Chicago to study with Len Koziel. And that's how I met Dr. Jansen's at that course um, or course of study. It was a couple of years. And so we overlapped a year and we got to know each other and have kept in touch and consulted. And whenever I have a question, she's the first person to call probably because she takes my call, but she knows a lot too. So that helps. And again, we've just kind of kept in touch over the years. And I think probably most importantly, because there's other peers that I consult with is I think we share a sensibility about this work and it's probably directly related to our, our mentor, Len Koziel. Well, he gets the ultimate uh, shout out, rest, rest in peace, right? Yeah. Len, Len knew some stuff. That's for sure. He was a, neuroscientist trapped in a neuropsychologist's body. And Dr. Laura, can you uh, tell us about yourself as well for all the new parents that have come on board? Sure. Um, I am also, uh, I guess, identify myself as a neuropsychologist at this point in my career. I've um, been working about the same uh, quantity of time as uh, Dr. Skip here, uh, 25, 30 years in the business. Uh, I started off um, I went to Bradley University, and I, I, um, I don't know if I'm unusual, but I still keep in contact with my uh, college uh, mentor and, and college friends, and I go back to, uh, it was Bradley University, I go back there uh, frequently, you know, meeting friends and, and mentors. Uh, one of my mentors, we talked about this in the last podcast, is uh, in addition to Len Koziel, uh, is uh, Dr. Lori Russell, and she's written one of the uh, best uh, textbook in, in neurofeedback. So, Anyway, I uh, went, went to Bradley. I have strong connections there still. Um, uh, she has a center for brain uh, research and, you know, kind of participate uh, in, with, with that group. Uh, they have yearly conferences and they invite people there like uh, PTSD specialists, um, uh, Dr. Vander Kolk and, and other, uh, uh, Dr. Amen and, uh, you know, other people in the field uh, who are pretty prominent. So anyway, I like to keep looped up in, into that. Um, but uh, making the introduction longer than it needs to. Um, my earlier career was in uh, 
doing psychotherapy, which is, you know, the talk therapy, uh, helping people change, you know, consciously change their thinking systems so that uh, their, their moods and their uh, situations uh, improve. And uh, along the way, met, met Dr. Koziel, Len Koziel. Uh, we just by accident, actually, he, he was renting space in the same place. Uh, he turned me on to neuropsychology and off, off that ran. Uh, it was actually Skip. I was thinking about this morning, uh, Skip. Uh, I believe it was Skip who kind of turned me back on to uh, neurofeedback. I, I've certainly heard about it, and Dr. Ru Russell's definitely kind of lit some flames for me with that. But I think it was Skip who, who uh, he might have to correct me on this, but I think he's the one who kind of called or uh, contacted me and said, hey, this neurofeedback's training, you want to do it? And I think I gave him my usual response without thinking, yeah, sure, why not? And uh, we, we both got in the neurofeedback uh, as a supplement to our neuropsych testing. So long answer, there you go. And, and neurofeedback, I mean, it, it's been around a while, at least uh, since the early 90s. I mean, it's been around longer than that, but I mean, really got going uh, then. Is that, is that right? Because you guys combined your experience, uh, shoot, that's 50 years. Uh, Plus, 50 yeah, years. We can, yeah. Yeah, we can do a history class and talk about... Uh, you know, isolating uh, neurons and isolating an alpha wave that was in the late 1800s. So this stuff okay. has been along for around for a long time. Sure it has. And biofeedback uh, predates neurofeedback, right? Right, right. Okay, guys. A uh, couple quick shout. Thanks for doing that. A couple quick shout outs. Uh, Robert Thatcher. Uh, do you guys know him? Yes. He owns my mortgage. <laughs> Uh, NeuroGuide Z-Score database, uh, you know, he, he's the one that has the big database, the normative database that we compare our uh, brain scans to. Is that right, guys? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so, but uh, President and CEO of Applied Neuroscience Incorporated uh, definitely deserves a shout out. And then uh, John, is it uh, Demos, right? Demos? Demos, no? We'll edit that out in post. Yeah. John, John Demos, okay. Uh, got a book that I probably bought a few. No matter how I pronounce it, I know I've bought uh, several of his books uh, for the business. Getting started with EEG neurofeedback, it's a, it's a must own. So shout out, great work. You guys got anything to add to those uh, two guys? For, um, for Bob Thatcher, the NeuroGuide software system that he's basically developed that complements or maybe even rests on the the database you were referring to i see it in all kinds of other uh, practitioners work and as they start talking about eegs brainwave activity and things like that they're referring to and showing pictures of neuroguide and so it's a pretty prominent uh software pro program that I, I can speak for myself, certainly, but it allows us to do some pretty innovative things that weren't available even back in the 90s, early 2000s. Like we can see stuff now that we yeah, just couldn't yeah. in our offices, right? That's mm -hmm. yeah, pretty well, phenomenal. Well, you know, the parents that I've seen, they, they, they want to see a difference in what's going on with their kids. And it's easy to, to explain red and green, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Very, very easy. Okay. 
Um, okay, shout-outs are done. Oh, man, we got a bunch of uh, questions. And just to let everybody know, we don't have enough time to get to uh, – to get into the weeds of everything, we're going to come in at 30,000 feet. And then based on the response that we get from the podcast, we'll narrow down and we'll, we'll have another podcast on what everybody's uh, commenting on. What do you guys think? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we talk about this stuff forever, you know? Oh, oh, we will. We will. Well, Just not today. Just not today. Okay. Um, the fir- first one I have on the, on the list, Dr. Skip uh, is, you know, how does uh, anxiety impact development? Well, immensely is the short kind of smart alecky answer, right? But real quick, maybe we can just define what anxiety is because I think if people have a general idea um, and there's certainly, as with any disorder, a spectrum uh, that you fall on as far as intensity of symptoms and, and so forth. Um, but anxiety is basically a, a a stress that's out of proportion to whatever the event or situation might be, right? It leads to worry, restlessness. Sometimes there's preemptive worry and restlessness about potential future events, right? Some of the cognitive side effects can be or or symptoms or lack of concentration, racing thoughts, unwanted thoughts is a big one, right? You don't want to be worrying about stuff, but there it is. And these kind of cognitive and, and kind of uh, tangible symptoms that I'm referring to have physiological effects that then now everybody's involved. So now you got mind, body, and spirit playing. And now, now you're feeling nervousness. Now you're sweating. Now your heart's racing, which is a loop. And so now your consciousness recognizes, oh my gosh, my heart's racing. What's the matter? Any thought like that's going to startle the fight or flight system. And now you're unconscious uh, autonomic nervous systems at play and now everybody's on board. And so anxiety can be a debilitating, um, disorder, if you will. But again, just to kind of lay out what it is and it can be extreme, it can be minor, but it's often, uh, debilitating when it's around. So it affects development, right? It affects performance, um, just by its mere presence. Okay. Dr. Laura, what do you think? How does it impact the kid's development? Parents want to know. You said wasted energy, right? Pardon the fun. Well, um, yeah, your resources are going toward defending yourself. I mean, I think in terms of evolution, you know, everyone has heard, you can Google all, all the, uh, you know, parts of the nervous system, but, um, you know, for play at home neuroscience bingo, we, we have an amygdala uh, in our brain. It's, it's responsible for fight or flight. You know, you, you back an organism into the corner. Um, it's, it's got, you know, two options to, uh, you know, run away uh, or beat something up. And we, we kind of know that catchphrase, you know, if we don't, you know, we're, we're not biology or, you know, psychology majors, we, we've heard the phrase fight or flight. What we may not be as um, uh, knowledgeable about is, is the third option. Uh, if you... Um, stump an organism, they cannot fly, they cannot fight. The other option is freeze. And so there's a whole set of symptoms involved in this freeze mechanism. Uh, uh, you know, it's a defense uh, response um, when, when you're trapped. And, you know, as we're thinking about COVID and, and you know, I'm going to date this uh, podcast, but, you know, we're waiting on an election right now. 
Um, and we don't need to go down that road at all, except to say that we're kind of in freeze. Like we don't, we don't know where we're going, what's going to happen next. And, and uh, you know, there's a whole set of things going on with that. With, with COVID, you know, you're at home. Um, you know, you don't know, you know, if your class is going to meet next week and if you're talking about kids and there, there's this kind of limbo, uh, you know, situation that people are in, you know, in terms of anxiety. So, you know, we definitely have the physiological symptoms, uh, you know, heart racing, um, you know, get into the vagus nerve and, you know, again, put that on your bingo card, but uh, vagus nerve has to do with your, um, you know, intestine functioning. Um, and and uh, I'm sure Skip can talk about, you know, chronic uh, anxiety and, and uh, toxicity with, with chemicals um, and how they affect your gut and how your gut and your anxiety is connected. So, you know, there, there's many, many things happening, but, you know, I, I think we should pay special attention during COVID here with this freeze response with, um, you know, dissociative effects or low I see so many patients, I'm seeing a lot of patients still and, you know, we're doing all the precautions, but I'm seeing a lot of this real low motivation, low inertia, low energy, this kind of withdrawal kind of effect, withdrawing from society, even though we're already, you know, kind of trapped a little bit. Um, but yeah, you get this kind of low arousal response um, and it's a freeze. It's a freeze response to anxiety. And that's something that is, you know, more subtle and and, you know, less understood maybe. And I, I think we need to put a spotlight on that. And, you know, when we talk about anxiety. Last week, we uh, gave a shout out to uh, Seaburn Fisher, and she wrote a book that talked about developmental psychology. Um, and I don't want to get too into the weeds with that, but you guys are the docs. I'm not, I'm just reading a book, but isn't there an age where the, for the kids and their development that whatever's happening to them now, if they're anxious now, it might set the path for them to be anxious, anxious later in life. Uh, can you speak to that? Well, sure. I can, I can Pete. Um, I think that there's truth to that. Um, that's the nature of development in that we respond to our environment. So the old joke is, Hey, is it nature or nurture? And the answer is yeah, because, you are set up with your genetics that can be um, turned on and turned off as well, which is another podcast, but your environment has a direct impact on development. And so, yes, these things send you on a path. Uh, ironically, one of the sub subtext of, of your podcast is neurofeedback, which neurofeedback is phenomenal for setting things on other paths or more prescribed paths if we're going to start getting into brainwave frequencies and, and ranges and such. But anyway, um, so there are ages where maybe it's more impactful. Um, everybody that's you know, speaking on this podcast is in a different state developmentally than say a five-year-old. I think the same principles would apply to us in that if we experience something in our environment, it would affect our future development because we still got some time left, if you know what I'm saying. But we're here to talk about kids. Um, I think what I would like to say um, about the development piece, and I'll just give my kind of opinion in my work uh, and, and Laura and, and Pete, um, it feels like a big thrust of my communication with parents is having the conversation around this development or influence of, of factors on unconscious functioning. 
And so the development that you're referring to, Pete, as you know, is unconscious functioning, right? It, it, it's the 95% of the things that the brain and body do beyond our conscious awareness. And we need it to be that way, or we'd never get out the door in the morning, right? But to have the conversation with parents so that they can comprehend, understand, maybe even carry it into live events in their life is that, hey, yeah, your kid's exhibiting these symptoms and we can see them, but they're driven by factors beyond your son or daughter's consciousness. If that weren't the case, it's as simple as this. You would say, hey, Johnny or Janie, stop being anxious. And they'd say, you know what? That's a great idea. Thanks. But it doesn't work that way. So roundabout way, Pete, of saying, yeah, development happens and it sets folks on trajectories and then habits form over time, physiologically and neurologically. And then that becomes our go-to, right? That's our fixed, in quotes, personality. What we know now, even since Laura and I started in school in the last 15 years or so, so much has come out with the advent of technologies. Now that we can see things, Laura and I have incredible technologies in our offices, right? Because of things being available that weren't even 20 years ago. It's changed our ideas about how things are set. And so things can change is my point. I don't have a, Let me... I don't have an audio for you, Pete. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. Laura. Well, um, just to kind of, you know, kind of go to the left hand of that, that um, in, I think in terms of, and this is Len's fault, you know, uh, I think in terms of neuroanatomy or brain structures, or how, you know, how the, you know, what's under the engine, you know, and um, we, we know, or we, we say we know um, that there, when you hit back to the fight or flight response, we know when there's, uh, uh, fear when there is trauma. And I, I think we can um, use the word trauma with, you know, back to talking about COVID, talking about children, talking about the environment we're under. I mean, we, we all, um, you know, can bounce back. We're, you know, we, we use the word plastic that we can learn to adapt. And that's a Len Cozio thing for sure. You know, we can, we can learn to adapt to our situation, but you know, what we know about how the brain operates, that many of the structures in the brain are plastic, and um, which means you can mold, mold the, the brain structures uh, with learning. So, you know, there's that quote, um, neurons that fire together, wire together. So mean, meaning you can, you can learn things and that actually changes the, the structure of your brain. Um, there's a study, uh, actually Seaburn Fisher brought this up in her book, study of some cab drivers and uh, they took pictures of the brain beforehand and they trained these cab drivers in uh, different uh, routes, like driving different places. And they had to memorize these di different routes and they took pictures afterwards and they saw that these parts of the brain, these deep structures, hippocampi, the deep structures in the brain that consolidate memory, they actually physically were different after the learning experience. So point is that, yeah, uh, you know, we can, we can learn, we can adapt, we're plastic, but here's the problem. Uh, and I think when we talk about anxiety is that the deeper the brain structure, the, the older the part of the brain, the more primitive the part of the brain, um, the less plastic it is. So where I'm going with that is that when you have a, you know, extreme fight or flight uh, 
reaction and you're, you're living in fight or flight or you're, you know, in this limbo of freeze and all that kind of stuff, those parts aren't very plastic. And, uh, you know, while we can, you know, again, learn routes and we, you know, our brains are phenomenal, you know, in terms of learning different procedures and adapting and all the good stuff, uh, the, the, the issue seems to come down to, you know, it, uh, if you're traumatized, kind of what does that do? And how can you learn? How, how can you do anything but try to survive? And that's where our resources are going. And, and I think that becomes the issue. So I think we're, me and Skip are absolutely on the same page with, yeah, we, we can adapt to things. And Len Koziel really brought that to our attention. Um, and we're capable of adapting to zillions of things. But when, when you have fear involved, that kind of, uh, you know, shuts the dials down. That goes into the next question, guys. Um, and maybe you covered it, maybe you didn't, but how does anxiety affect learning or IQ? Mom wants to know. I'll handle, uh, or at least I'll address the learning. Um, and my experience of working with folks with any, any kind of emotional addition to the environment, meaning if you're engaged in a problem solving task, and as the evaluator, I'm, I'm evaluating, meaning I'm, I'm timing and counting what's happening. Anytime an emotion is introduced to that setting, it confounds the problem-solving process. What, is that, what does that mean? It, it's simple language. When you have emotions riding sh uh, shotgun with you, they're going to mess up your problem-solving strategies. So the issue that I always try to, to address with, with parents is, what we're talking about or what we're referring to in general, right? Obviously specifics uh, exist, but in general, we're talking about an emotional dysregulation um, back to this idea of anxiety and certainly trauma. These things are adaptions to our environment. And because of the way we operate as, as you know, mammals is it becomes a physiological and neurological response system. It's automatic, right? So, when you have these things that are automatic and that are there, even something which Laura and I, old hats here would say, what's the big deal? We're just doing some testing. Folks get anxious when they, when they test. And if you have difficulties with emotional regulation, some folks do, um, a lot of folks I do, but anything that I see do. But um, if you have that kind of automatic response, then the anxiety is introduced into the setting. Again, unconsciously, it's a response to its environment because it's learned and habituated and so you can then see, hopefully, by the way I'm describing it, how that would impact the specific testing environment, right? Or learning environment, right? What I do with folks is evaluate. But that then will compile. And if you're constantly, again, having an emotion ride and shotgun that's kind of confounding the process of learning, it's gonna take its toll cumulatively over time. And so that's the longer answer. The shorter answer is that it's gonna interfere with learning. It, it has to, by definition, um, because it's there and it requires space, right? And, it, and then it's going to have its effects on its own. And so that's, you know, with anxiety or trauma or depression, any kind of emotional addition to a problem-solving strategy is going to make it more difficult, right? Think of any horror movie when someone's trying to, you know, re grab their keys and open up the front door because something's chasing them, right? Like they're all freaked out and they can't even remember which keys for the front door. That, yeah, that, yeah. Okay, that's it. And so I don't, yeah, I'll let you touch uh, do whatever you want to there, Dr. Laura, but I'll let you go with IQ if you want to. I just didn't really have a bunch. Yeah, of um, I don't know. Me and the 10 foot pole and IQ, I don't know. Um, 
uh, th that's a difficult one because you know we're, we're trying to define IQ and you know, what's the purpose of an IQ test and we can get into all sorts of debates about that. Um, but but I, I think the question probably just kind of boils down to you know back to the adaptability. You know maybe you know if we boil down what what is an IQ. You know it, it's how can you function in, in the real world. And um, you know again we go back to trauma, go back to anxiety. Um, you know, what Skip was just referring to, and you know, questions about learning, the, and again, I'm going to go under the hood here uh, with talking about some brain structures, but amygdala's fight or flight, we know that stuff, uh, that is uh, part of what's called the limbic system, it's the emotional system, but what's important to know is not the, the, the terms, not, you know, again, trying to give you a science class here, as much as to tell you this part, that the amygdala, which is your fight or flight, your anxiety defense mechanism, is directly uh, involved with your um, memory systems. So, you know, learning uh, and, and uh, anxiety um, move together. So if you're, if you're relaxed, you're going to learn. If you're not relaxed, uh, forget it. And um, even, un you know, I guess we are talking about unconscious learning here. You know, even, um, you know, uh, there's this um, tradition, I talked to a gentleman once from the country of India, and he talked about this concept called punch the pillow, and I thought it just kind of sticks in my mind. He said, in their country, and I don't know, you know, you know what, what parts of the country, whatever, but um, he said before they go to bed at night, they're uh, trained, or, you know, the part of the tradition to punch the pillow. What's punch the pillow? What's that? Uh, when you're ready to fall asleep, you, you go into, um, you know, you're, you're part awake, part asleep, and that's where we learn the best. So when we're most relaxed, we, we learn the best. So he punches the pillow with an intention, something he wants to remember the next day. And um, so he'll say, oh, I have to remember to pick up my laundry or go to this meeting or finish this report or whatever he's working on. And he punches the pillow, and then in that relaxed state, the, the memory sticks. So you know, so it kind of speaks to the same, you know, question of learning and memory, even at this unconscious level, and Skip, you know, said the same thing, that um, we're only learning when we're relaxed. So, you know, what resources do we have available, um, you know, to put toward, you know, the, 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 I'll say the blackboard, but, you know, but toward the screen when you're doing the Zoom learning and, and all the anxiety that creates, um, if you're not relaxed. So they absolutely go hand in hand. Okay, that goes into uh, what's the difference between anxiety and ADHD? A dad wants to know. Skip it. Skip. Skip yeah, hit sure. it. Sure. Um, I can answer my way, and then I, I'm, I'm kind of liking the way you're going under the hood, so to speak, Laura. But so, real quick, and again, not to turn this into any kind of, uh, you know, any, any 101, whatever for anybody necessarily, but you have to know about uh, the diagnostic um, protocol. You don't have to, but it's just, I think it's helpful to understand it, that things like anxiety, ADHD, autism, depression, they're labels, and we know that, and it's the nomenclature for the mental health and psychiatric world so that issues can be communicated back and forth between providers and let's not forget insurance companies and, and humans, right? Other people. So that's there, but what they represent are observable physical behaviors that then fit a certain criteria, six out of eight, 
eight out of 10, whatever, that would then qualify someone for a certain diagnosis. Now, why I'm mentioning all this is because there's an incredible amount of overlap and everybody on this podcast right now could probably qualify for 40 or 50 diagnoses today because they're so generic sometimes. And I might be just speaking for me, but uh, mm-hmm. it might be a little more uh, generic in their application, um, meaning there's overlap of observable symptoms between both ADHD and anxiety. And so that's where when Laura gets a second here, um, she can talk about more where they come from neurologically, but also it need be mentioned that the DSM doesn't necessarily tie these diagnoses to neurological functioning. They're observable behaviors, things we can see, right? And I think it's an important distinction. Um, They're not something that live in a Petri dish, right? It's something that we've agreed to call things. And so with that said, again, anxiety tends to be worry, hypervigilance, intrusive thoughts. It has physical manifestations of heart palpitations and sweating and you know things along those lines. Whereas ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is what that acronym is for, tends to refer to difficulty paying attention to things, difficulty staying still, right? That's the activity part. Um, so it, it's more of a um, dis or, or inattention to things as well as a difficulty or even inability to not do things. So if you want to think the way I always think of it is you think of those Western saloon doors and you have a part of your brain that Laura can talk about that swings one way and the other way and it allows you to do things or not do things or not start things and start things. So you're continually monitoring your environment and doing what's appropriate. And if your gating system or your saloon doors aren't working okay, then that results in often what's referred to as the ADHD you know, uh, diagnosis. But there's overlap is my point. So this dad wants to know what the difference is. And there is a difference, but they could be the same thing in sheep's clothing on different days, given their neural anatomy sources. And with that, I'll, I'll kind of defer to Laura if she's okay to take over from there. But sure, yeah, I, I like your saloon door uh, analogy. Um, what I, first came to my mind though is what Len Koziel had said. You know, we, we uh, Len Koziel in, in our classes, you know, talk frequently about the DSM and how a diagnostic statistical manual—it's the uh, bible, so to speak—that uh, psychiatry uses to uh, label people. You know, give diagnosis so that they can you know know which direction to go with their their treatment, but. Uh, so, you know, the conversation of DSM came, came up quite a bit, and especially as Skip mentioned that, um, you know, you, you open up one of these manuals that have all these symptoms in there, and there's very little, we'll, we'll say, objective information there. There's very little, uh, if any, talk about neurology and neuropsychology and objective testing, and I could probably bet the license that there's nothing in there about neurofeedback. So um, it's a very subjective tools, and, and Len would argue uh, even from you know where he's at right now, that uh, it's outdated, and, and we have other ways of um, you know understanding people and, and uh, you know helping them develop treatments and things. Um, but it, back back to Len. So I remember what he said in class that um, you know uh, ADHD used to be called. They used to have two 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 branches back. I think in the 80s when I first started, uh, it was ADD and ADHD. Remember that, Skip? They had yep. AD, so. It used to be attention deficit disorder, and then it used to be attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity. So one would have this hyperactivity piece and the other one didn't. 
Um, and then now, now we're just saying ADHD with inattention or with impulsivity. So whatever, it's kind of the same thing. It kind of splitting hairs on that. But what Len Koziel had said is, you know, if we're going to rewrite the, the phrasing again, the terminology, uh, we should rewrite it to say it's an intention disorder. You intend to do something, but reflexively you do something else. If you're sitting at a stoplight and you're waiting for the light to change, you're primed, you know, waiting for the green light, but that little green arrow in the corner of your eye for the turn, turn lane uh, flashes green and you have that moment where you leap, where you kind of lose, we'll say self-control, that's an intention disorder. You don't intend on going, but you're, you go anyway. Um, that is kind of one of these hallmarks of ADHD, as Len would uh, define it. Um, I, I told that story real quick. I told that story to a gentleman once, and he said, yeah, you know what? I got into three car accidents doing that. My, my, I, I leapt, you know, I, I leaped when I didn't mean to leap, and I've, I've smashed my car three times. And so that's an intention disorder. He didn't intend on smashing his car, but he lost his self-control. So, uh, you know, back, back to the bottom of this, that... Um, ADHD has typically two parts, just like Skip's analogy with the swinging uh, saloon doors, that it's can I bring my attention to where I, I want it to, and can I stop all the other incoming stuff and other, all, all the other options of my behavior when I need to. So, so um, it's a combination of two things happening at once, for sure. So if the, the DSM manual... Mm -hmm. it, is what's been used for a long time and it kind of gives it paints a broad brush puts labels on people uh in your in our field what would you use to get objective data to get a, a better diagnosis well i think that's a pretty good segue to neurofeedback and to bob thatcher's gift to us with this neuro guide is i have folks come in and i use the brain mappings or the cues, the QEEGs, quantitative EEGs, as a supplement uh, to the neuropsych testing because it'll actually show, as you've referred to or alluded to, Pete, um, different areas of the brain and the colorations, which lets you know what kind of activity or inactivity is occurring there. And now we're able to have conversations with folks about you know, put it simply, but what's working, what's not working, which immediately lends itself to treatment uh, versus here's all these things and we're going to call it this um, and it's going to get treated as if this it's this label. So again, back to the idea that we can now literally see things that allow us to have a better understanding neuroanatomically what's going on. And now we're at the, the source, now we're at the issue. You know, root cause is a phrase that's thrown around a lot, but now we're there, at least up in the brain, right? And as Laura was mentioning before, there's all kinds of other systems um, that are involved in what the brain does. And very currently, the gut, which is, you know, from the mouth all the way through, so it's not just your tummy, you know, um, is referred to as the second brain and there's more neurons in the gut than there are in the brain. And there's more neural pathways going from the gut to the brain than the brain to the gut. So that means the gut's talking to the brain more than the brain's talking to the gut. So what does all that mean? It means that there's more to the picture than we think. And it's more to 
the story than Johnny or Janie just not listening to what we're telling them, right? There's a lot of factors going on here. And I think that might be podcast two or three, you know, with other factors that influence how the entire physiology works towards basically performing and performing is just whatever you need to do in your day. And sometimes that means sit down in class or, you know, um, stop chewing with your mouth open at dinner, you know, like whatever it might entail. But anyway, there's a lot of factors that are. Skip, yes, I, I know that's, you know, we probably really should have another podcast to talk only about that, but can, since we're, we're kind of talking about anxiety and COVID and can, can you give us a, a, a hint uh, or not a hint, but a, you know, a couple of examples of how, you know, gut health and um, COVID uh, lockdowns and, you know, learning might play together? Sure, I can. Yeah, sure. Just a little bit, yeah. Uh, yeah, at least, you know, touch on it. Um, so there's a field of medicine that's referred to as functional medicine. And so functional medicine is concerned with the entirety of how a particular organism is functioning, right? And in this case, we're talking about us, you know, humans. And so real quick, traditional Western medicine uh, is symptom driven. And so you have a runny nose and you're given an antihistamine to stop the nose from running. Functional medicine will look at that system. Why are there histamines being produced? Is the system broken or faulty? Is there something in the environment that is triggering the system to do what it's supposed to do, right? Kick out histamines if, if that's the case. And so again, it's looking at contributions to a behavior. And so when you do that, you're, you're taking more of a holistic approach. What that entails is this idea of gut health. And what's again, been, been known for a good 20 years or so, but it's just becoming more prominent and prevalent in the research as again, our technology advances and we can just see more is that gut health is instrumental in overall cognitive functioning. And it does involve what I mentioned or alluded to just real quickly um, a minute ago. And that's the idea that the gut's talking to the brain. And that's a simple way to put it. Um, but that gut health is instrumental in overall functioning, but they're finding that it's involved in a lot of neurodegenerative diseases, which we're here talking about anxiety for kids, but I'm referring to dementias. I'm referring to Parkinson's. I'm referring to those kinds of disorders that are, you know, quote, old folks things, but they start in our 20s and 30s. The latest research and, and findings or conclusions about what to do with dementias is preventative type lifestyles starting in your 20s and 30s. And so my point in that is, is that it's this entire system that involves gut health because what ultimately happens, and I know I'm you know, simplifying things like crazy here, is that through gut dishealth or dis-ease, you develop what's called a leaky gut. And so now you have toxins that are supposed to be in your gut and be processed through your gut, leaking into your bloodstream. And then they're able to travel north and get through the blood-brain barrier and affect, affect uh, neurological functioning, but also affect neurological structures. Right? So, so there's a deterioration that happens over time. And also back to Laura's vagal nerve example, um, with a leaky gut, just to pick an issue that's involved in this kind of functional medicine way of looking at things or just gut health in general, is that there's also uh, often inflammation. And I don't mean, you know, like you bang your toe inflammation, even though it's 
the same thing, just in a different direction, but inflammation in the way that it's inhibiting these communication patterns. So over time, you're also getting a, a diminished communication efficiency, if, if that makes sense to you. But also what's happening is that you're creating an environment that there's increased adrenaline and cortisol, right? And those are good guys when you're getting chased by the saber-toothed tiger. They're not good guys when you have to stay inside for six months because there's COVID and you're living in the Chicago suburbs and you just got to, you know, now do your homework over Zoom, right? It's, it's a system that's in place because we evolutionarily need it. We've also now find ourselves in an environment where we're constantly alerted by things and this system is getting flipped on too much. And so it's, it's, it's contributing. I don't want to say it's creating. It's contributing to these imbalances, as I've been referring to, that over time lead to things that we can call anxiety. But when you kind of start checking it out a little bit more under the hood, as you say, Laura, we're seeing that there's other issues here. There's other issues that can be dealt with and that should be dealt with as opposed to just treating you know, anxiety. Right? So again, go ahead. Sorry. You know, no, no, that's great. Um, so let me kind of bring it back home. We can come full circle on this conversation. Yes, we're talking about children, and you know, certainly it's the uh, topic. You know, uh, right now is is COVID, and, and you know, where are things going, and the fears, et cetera. Um, but when we're, and this is, you know, getting you know, kind of specific. But but I think we should open this conversation. That again, our limbic system is our memory in our fear system, and we could also you know, talk about our reward system, what motivates us and, you know, arouses us to do what we need to do. So there's all sorts of branches of this limbic system, but it's uh, memory, which has to do with learning, right? And has to do, and sorry for the uh, too much information, too much neuroscience here, but uh, there's a cholinergic um, function uh, involved here. Um, and the reason I say cholinergic, because that, that helps with, with memory. And as we're talking about children trying to learn from Zoom and all that stuff, it, you know, uh, Skip brought up neurodegenerative disease. You start talking about Alzheimer's. These are the exact same pathways and chemicals involved uh, or that are dysregulated when we start talking about dementias and Alzheimer's. So we're talking about child development and, you know, I don't want to be too, too gloom and doom here and, and draw a straight line here, but you know, if you have, you know, fight or flight, you know, trauma experiences and, you know, the gut health issues, and they do circle back with the vagal nerve, you know, to brain functioning. And, and again, we're wrapping in memory, we're uh, wrapping in learning, you know, ultimately, you know, what percentage of these, and me and Skip were talking about this yesterday, you know, did, uh, what percentage did you say people in our age group are, might end up with dementia, Skip? Half. Half. Okay. Yep. So half of the folks in our age group, I mean, you know, it's worth repeating, can end up with dementia. By the and, time they reach their 80s. So by the time we're on, everybody on this call is in the 80s. Right. Right. Here One we and a half of us. We'll still hear it, right? Yeah. So, uh, so the, but the point being is that we have these physical brain structures. We have um, the research domain criteria, which is going to be the next phase, you know, when the DSM gets phased out, we have these, that, that's a, um, a body of uh, science that uh, tries to objectify, objectify, try and make diagnosis. So we can look, we have the equipment, we could take these pictures, but the point is we have these brain structures and these chemicals that are uh, not acting properly when we're under trauma and anxiety. And yes, as children, 
you know, we're, we're you know, struggling with learning the, the appropriate things and what kind of jobs are we going to get if we don't learn properly, et cetera. But we're also talking about, yeah, boy, you know, would this in this hypothetically and, uh, you know, there, there's got to be some some validity in here somewhere. You know, what what is this going to turn into down the road in terms of, you know, are you going to be developing or be more susceptible to dementias and, uh, you know, it's something worth, you know, keeping our eyes open for. So guys, moms and dads out there, um, they're kind of wondering, oh man, does my kid have anxiety, ADHD, whatever the issue is, uh, how can they quickly get some objective data to figure out what's what's going on with our services? I'll grab that. Yes. So, um, you know, again, we're talking about objectivity. Um, uh, we, we have the equipment, the technology, as Skip said, these days we can, you know, have, have this little amplifier that can amplify electrical signals that uh, emit from your brain, uh, you know, a millionth of a volt, we have these little microvolts coming out of our, our brain because we're producing energy, we have power, you know, we're, our lights are on. And so uh, we're gonna have some power coming off our scalp uh, emanating from the brain and we can put a, a cap, a nylon cap on someone's head. There's little sensors in the cap uh, with some uh, conductive gel. We can put a little saline solution basically into the cap on these sensors, read the, the electrical uh, energy coming from your brain, transform it uh, into uh, patterns and pictures. And based on, you know, what areas of the brain are, are doing what, you know, what areas are working too hard, what areas are not working hard enough, we can get a, as Pete calls it, a heat map. We could, you know, find out what's out of bounds, what, what's not expected to be functioning the way it's functioning and, and um, gives us, uh, you know, clues on kind of what's going on. We match up these objective uh, maps to people's um, you know, symptoms that they're telling us about. And, and uh, you know, we have people do checklists and, and try to monitor how they're, uh, you know, seeing themselves and, you know, match up to these brain patterns on these pictures. And then we develop treatment plans. We can, uh, you know, find out if the amygdala is working too much. We can find out if these, you know, memory and learning centers uh, and emotional fight or flight systems that are connected, are, are they, you know, overactive or are they underactive? And uh, if they are, then, yeah, we, we do have neurofeedback services to help uh, people help themselves. Uh, uh, the brain can get feedback on how they're performing in these brain regions and uh, train themselves um, by, and you know, th there's, we could talk about this, you know, and we have another podcast, but the, the, the procedure for neurofeedback is you can basically sit in a lazy boy chair, we can have you pick out a movie or, uh, on Netflix, and you can get reward-based learning um, to help regulate those those areas of the brain that are dysregulated so basically the reward is the movie plays when your brain regions are functioning properly and uh you get no reward when when they're not you know when they're out of bounds so uh this repetitive learning um uh translates to uh having that brain uh, area function properly you repeat it enough times in the the training will say sticks and then uh, we're expecting to see, you know, change in, in symptoms as a result of these kinds of trainings. Um, so yeah, we can help people with learning, with uh, anxiety and all the other things we were talking about today, including dementia uh, with uh, neurofeedback. I'm not a doc, I'm a dad. And it's just fascinating when you see these kids coming in, bouncing all over the place, 
they hop in that chair you put on the Netflix and they're leaning forward, eyes glued to the screen. They're, they're hands folded, uh, for, for, for 20 minutes. It's just, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Uh, guys, I think uh, that wraps up our time. Uh, Dr. Skip, thank you so much for coming on. How can, uh, people get some more information on your services? Uh, what's your, what's your website? How do they get a hold of you? Well, again, thanks again for having me on Pete. So there's that. And then if folks want to reach out, um, D R S K I P H R I N.com. So Dr. Skipperin, that's me. Uh, that's my website and it has my contact information on there. I do have a private practice in Alaska. So if you're ever in the neighborhood and want to talk to me, give me a call, but also, uh, because of, uh, our telemedicine trend here, uh, I can talk to anybody just about anywhere over Zoom. Dr. Skip, you're chilling in Alaska. You can be chilling soon. <laughs> D- Dr. Laura, how can people get a hold of you outside of NeuroNoodle? Uh, let's see. How about, how the, about the, the uh, website's a long address. Oh, you know what? We shortened it. Janssen's, J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com. And that'll uh, forward you to my website. And yeah, we have a practice here in Arlington Heights, Illinois, and we're connected with you out in Vernon Hills, Illinois, and we're moving to Buffalo Grove. And just like Skip said, uh, yeah, we're allowed to do things remotely. I'll speak for myself, uh, Skip, but uh, I've uh, purchased a travel trailer and who knows where the next uh, podcast will be from. Maybe (laughs) Jupiter, Florida, who knows? All right, all right. All right, that's outstanding, guys. And, I, and I'm Pete Jansen's at Neuro Noodle. Get a doodle of your noodle. Guys, take care.